Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anu Arafat, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome back, everyone, to the latest edition of the Irish Passport Podcast. Today, we'll be taking on a behemoth of Irish culture, the Celts. Who were they? Where did they come from? And why has the idea of the Celtic people remained so pervasive in Ireland and around the world? Now, we are fully aware that there are ancient historians and archaeologists all around the world right now listening to this and gritting their teeth uh, because this is a history that has picked up loads of misconceptions over the years. Uh, In fact, uttering the very word Celt is sometimes enough to get experts on the subject pretty head up. And interestingly, that whole debate has a fascinating political dimension. Of course, in Britain and Ireland, Celtic identity has been a thorn in the side of the United Kingdom. And as we'll see, that history continues to be used as a political football in questions about the Union's future. Meanwhile, the Celtic aesthetic has thrived all over the world, forming entire subcultures and even religions. In this episode, we'll be reporting from a Celtic music festival in the Netherlands, which we attended before the pandemic, where Mm -hmm. Tim and I got up close and personal with people who have adopted the Celtic identity into their modern lives. Uh, I'm wearing uh, an armor. It's it's an uh, elven armor, and uh, I bought it at um, a person who uh, does letterworking and sells his letterwork at other festivals. We'll be sorting fact from fiction when it comes to the history of the Celts, and speaking to Dr. Fraser Hunter from the National Museum of Scotland, who has this to say: There was certainly some sense of people called Celts. It's just we can't prove they were ever in Britain. We'll also hear from the independent historian and expert on medieval Ireland, Adrian Martin, who tells us this. All goes back to race, where the Celts are the lowest form of white men and Anglo-Saxons are the top. So, Naomi, Ireland, along with Scotland, Wales and the Isle of Man, Cornwall, Brittany in France and Galicia in Spain, are all known around the world as Celtic nations. And all of them have used this idea of Celticness to its absolute maximum potential as a marketing tool, especially in the tourism industry. Of course, if you've ever been in a tourist shop in Dublin or even an Irish pub in California, you'll almost certainly have seen images of Celtic knotwork, Celtic fonts, Celtic crosses, heard Celtic music and seen all sorts of stuff that broadly falls into the modern Celtic aesthetic. Yeah, and it's, it's hardly a mystery why that is. You know, the Celtic aesthetic is instantly recognisable. It's almost a brand in itself at this stage. Uh, if you take the example of tattoos, for instance, just you know, just think about how broadly appealing Celtic knotwork has been across a whole spectrum of tattoo design. Uh, in jewellery too, you know, it's a perennial favourite. Many of the most used symbols are ancient and copied from prehistoric carvings in Ireland or designs on medieval manuscripts made by Irish monks. And those designs remain very popular and sell well as consumer products. Perhaps one of the reasons for that is because of the idea of an ancient mystical link. The thought that there might be something secret or arcane hidden in them. Like it's a portal to some kind of ancient spiritual world that could be reawakened at any moment. Uh, So for instance, you might think of all those generic albums of quote-unquote Celtic music, which is really just code for vaguely mystical sounding music, you know, with lots of reverb, usually (laughs) that's about the only defining feature of it. The whole Celtic aesthetic is bound up with this very adaptable 
an ironically, you know, very modern notion of what ancient magic is. All across Europe, New Age pagans sometimes congregate at megalithic sites or other places, and they dress up in what they imagine to be Celtic clothes and carry out the rituals that they imagine to align with some sort of Celtic religion. But what we commonly see being described as Celtic often means very different things to different people. Uh, while on the one hand, Celtic identity is very closely linked with the national identities of those Celtic countries we just mentioned, it also has this whole other dimension to it in popular culture, where it's become a kind of umbrella term for a whole set of subcultures. Right, and it's been heavily drawn on by the fantasy genre and in the gaming world, and it also covers a whole range of alternative lifestyles, from the kind of hippie cultures that have used the identity as an expression of free living and getting back to nature, to the far right. So before we get stuck a bit more into the ancient history of the Celts, uh, let's take a look at how some people have understood this identity in more recent times. Uh, last year, Naomi and I decided to go along to a Celtic festival in the Netherlands to get a feel for this particularly international sense of Celticity. This was the Rapalia Zomerfolk Festival in the Northern Netherlands. And of course, this was back in the days before social distancing. So it was a huge gathering. The festival was set up in an open green area in the middle of a forest. There were loads of camper vans parked around and there was a pretty huge crowd on the day that we arrived. We had in the back of our minds a small apprehension that we might <laughs> have stumbled upon some kind of far-right rally because the notion of Celticness is, of course, tied up for some with an idea of ethnicity and Celtic symbols have sometimes been exploited by the far-right in some countries to represent an idea of, like, white purity. Um, so we had that caution in the back of our minds. But luckily, that wasn't at all the case here. There was a huge mix of people from all ages and all backgrounds and actually quite a lovely feeling of diversity and a very relaxed relaxed and accepting atmosphere the whole time. And practically everyone was dressed up in this huge variety of costumes, um, which ranged from like Captain Jack Sparrow to <laughs> Viking costumes to manga characters. So what did it all have to do with the idea of Celtic? What does Celtic actually mean that it can kind of encompass all of this? Let's listen to what we find out. And I let it to That's more fun to me than the singing of one verse, never mind two or three. And it's so they never look Though they never know why. Will I play the wild rover? They never Okay, so we're just walking in. <laughs> okay, there's already loads of people in quite colourful costumes already. They Tons seem of to kilts. Be... There's a fair few kilts now. Lots of different coloured kilts. And lots of people dressed in, I suppose, something like, I mean, something that's in like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yep. There's a dude with like a, a Czech sash and a kilt. And there's people looking like Maid Marian, kind of. And there's a big Scottish flag and an Irish flag that's flying over the whole scene. With the Dutch flag. I'm just seeing they're selling loads of Czech stuff, mm. check trousers, and here we have dream catchers. Jewellery, lots of jewellery. Lots of uh, Some Celtic-themed book. Oh, a book on Dublin. There you go. Oh, this big book on Dublin. Okay. Mm. And, and Ireland and the Highlands. And, and gear. Look, they're selling sheepskins. 
Okay, the sheep skins, how do we describe them? Is it like what Jon Snow wears yeah, exactly. when he's conquering the North? It's like Night Watch shit. <laughs> and there's, an, oh my god, there's an actual pelt of a fox there. Oh, there is, yeah, yeah. there's lots of fur. Oh, the drinking horns. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has a drinking horn, which is a large, I, I suppose it's an ox horn, and it's been hollowed out. And people are, are quite literally going to the pub and filling them up with beer and drinking out of them. And they, like, attach them onto their waist, like, a, like in a holster. And yeah. they're for sale here, as well as, what is that? Look at that. What? What? The helmet things. What's okay, so I'm seeing like the sort of helmet that might emerge on an ancient skeleton, like a metal armor helmet thing. I, I'm running to see how much this is. One and, moment. Okay, go and see. Okay, so the horn drinking mugs are 36. How much are the helmets? Yeah, no, no, don't, don't look. How much do you think they are? Are they like 150 quid? 729 euros. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my god, there's chain mail. There's like a full chain mail for sale. And swords. Hi guys. Hello. We're doing a radio program. Yeah. What's the festival like? Um, uh, well, we we come here every year and it's very uh, open and, well, nice to be in an o- other time. I, this is my fourth time. We like coming here because uh, there's a lot of people from all over the country, actually I think from all over Europe, and uh, it's just one big family, so it's, it's really nice. Uh, we have uh, um, Okomo on our hands, uh, it's uh, Mo and Amkara, uh, we are soulmates, so that's why we... Isn't that sweet? In uh, the year 2008 we went to Ireland and uh, we fell in love with the, with the country, and uh, now I'm uh, wearing a uh, kilt, so... For us, it's just an hour and a half uh, by airplane. But it's, it's like an entirely different planet. It's, uh, you, you say, 40 shades of green, I think. And, uh, well, the people are really nice. We like the sarcastic uh, undertone that uh, you guys have. And, uh, well, just uh, the whole culture and uh, the nature as well. We, we fell in love with it. Yeah. And how many events like this would you do per year, more or less? There's three events uh, each year that are in this this style. I think... He will be recognized more than uh, the other way around because he's about the only black guy wearing a kilt, so (laughs) he stands out. You got on your bike and you felt kind of wild. You had nothing to wear. Uh, I'm wearing uh, an armor. It's it's an uh, elven armor, and uh, I bought it at um, a person who uh, does leatherworking and sells his leatherwork at other festivals. Well, I'm not entirely sure. It's an elf or a barbarian, but something in between, I guess. Something between an elf and a barbarian. So. <laughs> You've got a drinking horn, you've got like face paint, like yeah. war paint almost, and you've got elven ears as well. I'm sli- I always feel slightly underdressed. The <laughs> medieval shirt and some medieval pants and boots and uh, also some pouches and war paint and a shoulder belt with a sword. Do you guys dress up like this often? A couple of times a year we go to uh, all sorts of festivals uh, here in the country. Yeah, I- I'm just really interested in all kinds of history and medieval and fantasy. 
stuff. And have you ever visited like Ireland or Scotland? Not yet. It, 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 it's, it's a giant wish and I, I hope we will get to it very soon. Well, um, actually, I, I really like just dressing up and um, big skirts and all. And this uh, corset, I actually bought, bought on the internet. And the skirt I made myself. And you've also got a fabulous hat with peacock feathers and everything coming out of it. And mm-hmm. a horn. What's yeah. the horn for? Uh, drinking. <laughs> How would you describe this style? Um, I don't actually think it's a kind of style, but I think it's a little bit gothic. Um, Inspired by uh, steampunk and just my own fantasy and what I like uh, to wear. Romantic, romantic yes, yeah. style. So how would you describe the idea of Celtic? Um, <laughs> I think um, Celtic is like this really old, old kind of religious people or settlements with a really, really beautiful uh, culture and uh, beliefs and ethics and all that stuff. They're selling a big T-shirt that says Haggis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw a guy dressed as a crusader. Did you see him? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's a long crusader. A funny take on this whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite a long historical period that's being comprised here. I mean, yeah. from, from like prehistory to, uh, you know, 1905. <laughs> they also have their own currency here. Uh, like these big old gold coins that look like treasure. Oh my God, it's a blacksmith. He's got an anvil. Oh, he does. He, ha- he has uh, embers here. Um, he's got molten metal. He de- must be demonstrating how to make axes. What's nice about that whole idea of being Celtic stuff? Can you explain what it's like? I don't know. Everybody wishes they were Irish, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's just cool. Thank You're you. from uh, Ireland. Islands. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. My name is uh, Alexander. I'm uh, living uh, near the border of uh, Germany, and uh, I'll be coming every year to the Rapalje Celtic Festival uh, here. And why do you like it? What's what is it about the Celtic stuff that you like? Um, uh, normally, I I, I, I uh, I'm a Viking. Uh, normally, you're a Viking. Yeah. Normally, I'm a Viking. Yes. That's uh, that's correct. I I, I will uh, dress myself like a Viking. We go back to 800. Uh, and what is it about that? that past, that history that you like and that you identify with? The easy things in life, not that complicating and uh, just doing stuff in conquer uh, villages and something. Conquer a village? Yes, that's cool. (laughs) I'm working at a cable company for internet and stuff and sometimes I think uh, people are getting crazy with uh, with all the all the shit and drones we see now. Uh, It's too much and then you like to go back in time and yeah relax some some times We are the Highland dancers from Zuidlaren. People like the music and it's a more combination of sports and dancing. Well, actually, I wanted to do Irish dancing 
And in the northern uh, par part of the Netherlands, there wasn't any Irish dancing at all. So then I found uh, the Scottish dancing and I thought, well, let's give it a try. So I get stick here for uh, 14 years now. Yeah, I think uh, most of it is, I think, the music. The music makes everything happy when you listen to the Irish music or uh, Scottish music. And a lot of people get goosebumps when they hear the, the bagpipes playing. So, Tim, as we make our way away from Song Folk, can we say at what point we stopped just sort of smirking and everything and started to, like, kind of get into it? <laughs> I don't know. There was a point when we sat down beside a fire, and a lot of people sat down beside the fire, and they didn't really move for, what, like an hour and a half? Like, we all sat together for about two hours, just, like, enjoying the music and drinking some beer. And at a certain point, I just realized, God, I'm really relaxed. Yeah. Like, I'm intensely relaxed. Might have been the lack of oxygen. <laughs> I am not worried at all. I don't have an urge to check my phone. Like, I am happy here. And that was something that we both remarked on, wasn't it? Like, we were nobody like, oh, was looking at their phone. No. Everyone was just lying down very exactly. much, like, enjoying themselves. Few phones to be seen. Yeah, so we liked it all along. Yeah. No, we, we were big fans, really, of, of this event. And we're walking away a little bit happy and elated. I mean, we're, we have smiles on our faces. Yeah, we definitely do. We, do. we definitely yeah. do. Yeah. It was a good day. Yeah. Gosh, Tim, listening back to that um, really gives me nostalgia. It's just hard to imagine <laughs> that those big, easy gatherings took place at all. So as you heard their listeners, the people at the festival weren't particularly bothered about being historically accurate. It was really a creative exercise for them. Um, they were taking things they found interesting from history or culture and using their imagination and kind of tying it together with a general sense of affection towards Ireland and Scotland in particular. It was pretty harmless and pretty nice, all told. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It was also interesting to see quite how much this idea of Celticness has permeated fantasy subculture. And I suppose it's um, it's often so broadly defined that it can be used in lots of very inventive ways and can intersect with all kinds of like old tiny ideas. It seemed to me anyway that the main access of the Celtic identity there was a central idea of freedom and simplicity, as well as this kind of romanticized underdog thing, which has some really interesting historical resonances, as we'll see. It was very noticeable how apparent there were influences from like HBO series. Um, mm. So some of the aesthetics were instantly recognizable from Game of Thrones or Outlander or Vikings, a kind of dramatic interpretation of ancient Northern Europe with lots of fur and leather and pre-industrial materials. And actually, I think that is the key that ties everything together. It's pre-industrial. A lot mm. of people that we spoke to described the modern world as kind of tiring and that they had a feeling of having lost something authentic. And the idea of the Celtic world allowed a kind of creative uh, recreational escape from that. And something I was thinking about was how does this actually relate to the reality of modern day Ireland and how it's perceived? Because, of course, as well as the, the fantasy and the fictional elements, there were actual Irish flags and references to real current day Irish culture. Um, so I was thinking about like how many people we spoke to mentioned that they'd made a trip to Ireland or Scotland and said mm. that this was sort of 
their way into the culture. You know, this was very much a part of the kind of being into the Celtic thing for them. And I understand that that might seem a bit phony to people in Ireland, but I think we need to think about it as this attraction of pre-industrial life. So Ireland is pretty unique in Western Europe in never having really industrialized. It It remained largely agrarian into modern times. And if you're coming from somewhere where most people live in cities and there's little or no wilderness, when you visit Ireland and you see those ancient tombs where the symbols that are now the foundation of the Celtic style are actually carved in stone from thousands of years ago. (laughs) And you can roam around in these dramatic, rugged landscapes and you can call into a little pub and be surrounded by like wood and stone and those traditional materials and hear traditional Irish music while drinking a beer. Like I can understand why that Ireland does fit in with the imagination of the Celtic world that people have. Yeah, I totally understand that. And it's not something I fully realised until I lived in continental Europe, I suppose. Something I think people in Ireland don't fully realise is just how unusual the landscape of Ireland is in a European context, um, or certainly a central European context. Uh, When you're in places like France or Germany or, you know, Benelux countries, like every inch of the land has been cultivated. You know, like even the forests, they've been cultivated at some point. If you go on a hiking trail up a mountain, there's still going to be you know, very clear and well-maintained, like, hiking signs and stuff. Um, So even the fashion of agrarian development in Ireland is so different because it's just a little bit more haphazard. It's, you know, it was smallhold farms falling down stone walls, you know, like cliffs, you know, like you're tumbling into the sea. And that's something really special, I think, that people find um, from from more urbanised areas. Absolutely true. Like, I remember I had a teenage visitor um, come to my family home in Hoth. And like Hoth is like 10 kilometres outside Dublin city centre. But mm. she looked around and I was kind of talking to her because she's from the countryside in, in northern Italy from a small village. And I was like, oh, you know, just talking about the countryside versus the city and things like that. And she looked around and she said, this isn't the countryside. This is wilderness. Like, <laughs> the wildness that you get in Hoth, like 10 kilometres outside of the city, isn't around in northern Italy. It's completely <laughs> cultivated, as you say. it's something that's interesting to me is just how global the Celtic presence is in fantasy and pop culture. Um, Writers can be quite notorious for borrowing aspects of current day Irish culture and kind of exoticizing it as Celtic. Um, Just as an example, there's a notorious scene in the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer where the characters open a dusty book of occult spells to reveal a symbol and some words written in Irish. (laughs) So, Tim, do you want to read the supposed spell from Buffy? Okay, right. Let's see. What do we have here? (laughs) To Bosvalak special telehoshkots emalio clia. Okay, so so you probably couldn't have got a less appropriate uh, piece of text that they chose here. This uh, means a special bu- bus route is opening in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> a bus lane, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just a, like a piece of text that's being copied and pasted about the opening of a bus route. Um, but this kind of borrowing of the Irish language um, can be pervasive in fantasy and gaming culture. And some of it has been documented by the writer Orla Nidu, who's described the fantasy industry as sometimes using the Irish language as a kind of open source elvish. This borrowing also extends into Irish mythology. Here's something I came across recently, which is from the Japanese anime Fate Zero. Did you catch what they said, Tim? 
I think so. Did, did I hear Fionn McCool, Dermot and Gráinne? Is that what they said? Exactly. So it's a Japanese rendering of the tale of Dermot and Gráinne in which the promised bride of the great warrior Fionn McCool falls in love with one of his men and the two run away together. Kind of tale of star-crossed lovers that's at least a thousand years old. And this anime series, Fate Zero, um, has a spin-off game in which you can actually select Dermot as your fighter character. Um, personally, I find this very charming and cool. Like, I don't have a problem with people bringing to life tales and stories from Irish culture, history and mythology at all. Actually, far from it. I think it's absolutely underused, if anything, given mm. like how much material there there is there. There's so many exciting stories that could be made. Like, if you just imagine a high quality production of The Tawn, for example. But mm. my main concern, though, is that they they must be good quality, you know, like and do the stories and characters justice and not fall into the traps of making errors that are egregious or misrepresenting or denigrating the culture. Yeah, right. And this can be uh, more difficult than it seems because, Naomi, <laughs> quite aside from these very liberal interpretations of Celticness in popular culture, there are also some pretty major ambiguities that plague the real history of the Celts. In fact, this is a history that is at times hugely contested. Yeah, and as it turns out, the very terminology of what we've come to think of as Celtic history is really very, very confused. Um, so, Tim, you've been donning your researcher hat in recent weeks <laughs> and you've come up with some explanations for us. Yes, yes, I have. But <laughs> everyone, Naomi, listeners, I've got a few disclaimers before I say another word on this topic and start getting angry letters. So, A... I'm not by any means an archaeologist, so sorry if I've misunderstood some of this, and we welcome any corrections. Uh, B, ancient history is notoriously murky. You know, what we see written up in museums and written down in books, a lot of that isn't fact. It's just theory and it's conjecture and it's being contested all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and C, theories about this thing are constantly evolving. So we can only talk about things we know for certain right now. And tomorrow, someone might make a discovery in a bog somewhere that changes absolutely everything I say. So, yes. I imagine it changes according to the political moment as well, which maybe we'll uh -huh. get into. So, disclaimer accepted, Tim. And <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's hear what you find out. Okay, all right. So, uh, to boil it down to brass tacks, the basic problem with this history is that different observers have referred to different peoples as Celts at different times. And by doing so, they have defined the idea of what is Celtic in these really diverse ways that don't always make sense when you put them all together. So let's start at the beginning. The cradle of what we might consider Celtic civilization was in and around the mountainous area that is now Switzerland, Austria, and southern Germany. Uh, this is where a proto-Celtic language seems to have developed at some point, perhaps during the Bronze Age, or according to some theories, even earlier. Okay, so just to be clear, Celtic languages are a major branch of European languages, so a bit like Latin or Germanic branches. It's kind of a language template, and there's mm. loads of different languages developed from it. So like within the Latin branch, you have French, Italian, Spanish, and so on. Within the Celtic branch, you have lots of different languages like Welsh, Irish, or Breton. Right, sure. And they're all kind of um, based on the same linguistic logic, but that they might not be intelligible one, one with the other. Um, so, uh, like I said, that language group probably began in Central Europe. And Central Europe is also where we can see some of the earliest examples of art styles and society that have since been called Celtic. 
So we found a lot of chariot burials there, for instance, which was a big thing for the Celts, uh, or torques, which are these very distinctive golden necklace things. You might you might be familiar with them, um, or brooches, or daggers, or even mirrors. And it's all very beautiful stuff, and it's clearly a highly distinctive style, while often incorporating elements from neighboring cultures like the Mediterranean. Now, during the Iron Age, with the development of better metal tools and horse travel, we see these people in Central Europe expanding their influence wider and wider through trade and settlement and things like that. And they were bringing their language and their art styles and their religion with them. Okay, so this is where it gets a bit more complicated, right? So even though we've been using this term Celtic, that was actually a term mostly used by Greek and Roman observers who were talking about these people, but not by the Celts themselves. Yeah, exactly. So as far as we can tell, the Greeks were the first to use the word uh, Keltoi uh, in the 6th century BC. Uh, But it's not always clear who exactly they were talking about. It's possible that the word was used as a kind of catch-all term for Northern Europeans. So if anything, it kind of shows how little the Greeks really knew about who they were talking about. Um, We could, I suppose, compare it to the word barbarian, which was also used for a whole host of very different peoples. Uh, Mm -hmm. And later on, the Romans also talked about Celts, uh, but they were usually referring only to the Gauls in France. So, like, think Asterix and Obelix. That's, you know. Um, and the Gauls people were, were basically like the native peoples um, in France when the Romans started to settle it. And now it does seem like some of the peoples of Gaul did call themselves Celts um, or some very similar term. But most Celtic-speaking peoples would probably have called themselves something else. Uh, Let's hear from Dr. Fraser Hunter. He's Principal Curator of Iron Age and Roman Collections at the National Museum of Scotland. Celt is a really interesting word because it's been used by different people in different times and different contexts to mean different things. So the earliest references we have to people called Celts come from Greek writers. But one of the problems we have is these classical sources are written from one side only. And they're written by people about worlds they don't really understand. It's written by the Greeks and the Romans looking out into worlds that are very, very alien. And even within the classical sources, there's an awful lot of confusion over who's a Celt, who's not a Celt. So we need to be really cautious in how we use these words derived from ancient sources. So where does Ireland fit into this whole story? Yeah, well, this is where it gets really interesting and quite mysterious, actually. So... Celtic culture and language actually had an incredibly wide reach at one point. You know, it was being practiced and spoken from Ireland in the west to Spain in the south, all across Central Europe and even as far east as uh, Turkey. Uh, But almost all of that territory was subsequently taken over by the Roman Empire. Um, And those Celtic languages and cultures, you know, mostly disappeared. Uh, After the fall of the Roman Empire, then came the barbarians. I'm just going to use that word (laughs) to make things simple. Um, The barbarian (laughs) hordes uh, reconquered Europe all over again. And by the time they were finished with it, any remaining traces of Celtic lifestyle were more or less kind of wiped out for good. By the way, all this happened in England as well, which was settled by the Romans for about 400 years, and then almost immediately invaded by the Anglo-Saxons who came from Germany and Scandinavia and who gave us the language English. Okay, so for thousands of years, the Celts have existed in the European imagination as a kind of mysterious native people, almost like Mm. a generic native people who once lived where we lived uh, before we brought modernity and like shunted them out. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the kind of legend that has pretty much always surrounded them, even during Roman times. 
And the Romans kind of depict them like these tragic, romantic underdogs. And you can still see a lot of sentimental classical statues uh, in Rome, uh, dating from like uh, ancient times of the dying Celt. Right, the dying Celt statues. I think mm. I've seen one or two of them in Rome. So basically the image is this really muscular and beautiful man who's nude except for a torque around his neck and often wearing quite a nice moustache. Um, but he's depicted in the moments just before his death and I suppose that's a kind of a symbol or tribute for the death of the Celtic world. Yeah, exactly. So you can see how the mythology is already building right from moment one. Now, all this accepted, Naomi, this yeah. whole time that all this was going on, that the Celts were expanding and then being taken over by this person and that, there were little pockets on the very western fringes of Europe that had remained relatively untouched by the Romans, namely Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, and the western extremities of France and northern Spain. Uh -huh. So, yeah, right. So, I mean, why these places weren't taken over by Rome is, you know, there's lots of reasons. Either they were too remote, they were too cold, or they were too mountainous, or it just wasn't worth it. Um, but w for whatever reason, the, Ro the Romans didn't take th these places over, not really. And the barbarians never really did either. They never really made inroads there either. Uh, so in these places, the much older Celtic languages and customs somehow survived. And of course, they continue to survive until this day. Right. Okay, so, so far, so good. So far, so good. And now we come to our big pitfall. Because the question is, how did those Celtic languages and customs get to those places? Um, you know, the western edges of Europe. How did they get there in the first place? Were these people in parts of Britain and Ireland the same Celts as the Romans had been fighting in France? And until the 1960s, it was generally assumed that, yes, um, before the rise of Rome, there had been some kind of mass migration of Celts from Europe to the Atlantic Islands, and that they brought their language and their art, and that they had just settled down. Which makes a certain kind of sense. Yeah, right, it would seem to, right? But but no. <laughs> in, in recent decades, all sorts of holes have been poked in that theory. Uh, firstly, there's just very little archaeological evidence of any mass migration happening, really, at any point. And even more intriguingly, it turns out that the DNA of people in Ireland, Scotland and Wales doesn't show any significant links with people in those typical Celtic zones in Central Europe. Okay, so that's really interesting. So though they had cultural heritage in common in, the ter in terms of the stuff that they were making, the beliefs and practices that they had and their, the languages that they had, they may not have been the same people. So maybe there was some kind of cultural transfer between them rather than a, a territorial expansion of a particular people. Yeah, yeah, that's about the sum of what the evidence tells us at this point. And as we'll see, the people in, in Ireland wouldn't have thought about themselves as Celts uh, by any means. I have a question, though. So we've kind of been looking at this whole story from the perspective of Greeks and Romans a bit, because they're the, you know, the histories that we have. But could it have been the other way around? Could it have been that the transfer came from Ireland out? Well, I'm so glad you asked me that question, Naomi. <laughs> There are some theories about that too. Um, there, some people think that the Celtic languages actually developed just way, way, way earlier than we think that they did. And that the Celtic languages were developing maybe since like, you know, into the, the Neolithic period uh, in Ireland at the same time as they were developing in Central Europe. So that these people were actually already speaking a Celtic language by the time that what we think of as Celtic culture was developing in Central Europe. But that's just a theory. Okay. Right. Um... 
So in terms of all of this, it, it's really quite mysterious. Yeah, and, and nobody has come up with a definitive answer uh, for any of it. We should keep in mind, however, when thinking about this idea of cultural transfer, that the ancient world was a lot more mobile than we might think. You know, people really did move around. They moved around a lot. And there was a lot of cultural exchange going on. And in fact, Ireland and Britain would have been a lot more culturally tuned in than most places because they were islands. And water was the principal means of travel and trade at that point. So islands were actually like exceptionally accessible places. Right. And of course, as we know from today, um, trade is absolutely key to spreading culture, languages and technology. Like people pick up and retain things that are useful to them, whether that's, you know, gold work technique or a language that will allow you to plug into a wider network of opportunity. Like just a bit a bit like, you know, how American culture, for example, has really permeated all around the world in the last century. Um, so I presume that these people in Britain and Ireland, they didn't call themselves Celts either, um, since you mentioned most Celtic speaking peoples didn't generally do that. Yeah, and that's something that we know for sure. Um, the Greeks and Romans didn't call the people uh, here Celts either. Uh, for them, Celts were a continental thing only. Um, they had other names for the people in these islands. In Ireland, for instance, they called us Scoti, which is where the word Scotland comes from, because there were loads of Irish settlements on the west coast of Scotland just at the moment when the Romans arrived. So what changed exactly? And why are the ancient peoples of Britain and Ireland so often known as Celts today? Yeah, there's a few reasons. So firstly, there is this big overbearing language thing. So since the 18th and 19th century, linguists started to notice that Irish, Scots, Gallic, Welsh, Cornish, etc. were all related to the languages of the ancient Celtic world. And so they, they christened this the Celtic family of languages. And logically enough, on that linguistic evidence, other observers theorised quite early on that this was all the same people. However, there is also a question of how archaeologists have used the terminology. You know, there's lots of archaeologists who have no problem calling the ancient people of Ireland Celts. You know, some simply distinguish them as the insular Celts, which just means the island Celts in this context. And their basic argument is, sure, you know, this is a mimetic or cultural identity, even if it's not a genetic one, but that doesn't make it any less real or valid. Right, and that makes sense as well. Like, you don't necessarily need blood ties in order to participate in and, and derive identity from a particular culture. Um, but I would also totally understand why ar archaeologists would want to avoid terms that might be misleading. So if we call the Irish Celts at a time when totally different people were using that label, it, it muddies the waters. Fraser Hunter explained to me that using the word Celts for the people of Ireland and Britain, it does succeed in capturing a very, very broad cultural idea. Um, but it it also means that we kind of lose some very important distinctions, not only between the peoples of ancient Ireland and uh, Central Europe, who called themselves Celts, but also among the very different people that lived within Britain and Ireland uh, in the Iron Age. We do know that there was there was certainly some sense of people called Celts. Um, it's just we can't prove they were ever in Britain. Uh, there are there are groups in in Gaul who called themselves Celts. It seems there are people within the Roman world who define themselves as being of Celtic origins. The danger is that we, I suppose, wash it across a much wider set of evidence to which it doesn't always fit. Similar to is not the same as same. Just because there are connections from Ireland or Britain to other areas doesn't mean this is the same set of people with the same culture. It's striking that you do see widespread linguistic connections across Europe. This, of course, doesn't mean they're necessarily the same people. People can be speaking similar languages, but be culturally very different indeed. And we can see that if we look at other aspects of the archaeology 
of Britain and of Ireland. Um, we see them doing some things very similar to the rest of Europe and some things very different from the rest of Europe. And even between Britain and Ireland, there are quite marked differences. So we can't really talk of a single culture or a single group all across Europe or all across Ireland and Britain at this time. What we can see instead are, if you like, a Europe of the regions where people are sharing some habits, some styles, some traditions, some beliefs, some languages, but other things are doing rather differently. So as I understand it, Tim, there was something else going on in the 18th and 19th centuries when it came to this idea of Celts in Ireland and in parts of Britain. As you've talked to us about before, around this time, British imperialists were getting into this idea of ethnicity and the Celtic label uh, became a way to redefine certain people as naturally inferior. Yeah, right. Uh, This was a hugely influential aspect of the whole thing. Um, This fashion for calling some people in Britain and Ireland Celts became particularly popular after the Act of Union with Scotland in 1707. Now, one of the main ideas behind that union with Scotland was to really push a British cultural identity rather than uh, English or Scottish. So people were being asked, for instance, to stop saying Scotland at all and to start referring to Scotland as North Britain. So you can oh see, my you know, <laughs> yeah, you can see what, what they were getting at there. So in that context, Celtic identity was promoted as like a weak or ephemeral thing. It was something to be conquered or vanquished. Because, you know, remember the Celts were already known to people as this these great symbolic losers, you know, in, in classical Roman <laughs> history, these romantically tragic people. So that's very much how people would have thought about this word Celt. Now, meanwhile, um, Anglo-Saxon identity... Uh, which supposedly represented English culture, was being promoted at this time as something, you know, opposite to Celtic identity. It was something modern, it was reasonable, and it was to be aspired to. Uh, So as far back as the 18th century, you get people like Samuel Johnson um, trying to modernise Scotland by stamping out, you know, this native culture. Uh, Listen to uh, this quote from him from uh, 1775. Uh, He's talking about some people that he observed on a trip to the Scottish Highlands. Till the Union made them acquainted with English manners, the culture of their lands was unskillful, and their domestic life uninformed. Their tables were coarse as the feasts of Eskimos, and their houses filthy as the cottages of Hottentots. Well, that's a very explicit reference (laughs) to, you know, like native people and uh, people in Africa. So I, I suppose taking these peripheral places, peripheral from the point of view of England, that spoke languages that weren't English and had a culture that was different and relabeling them as Celtic, that was an efficient way to to other them. And it did become a standard way of talking about these non-English speaking countries, you know, very quickly. So in uh, 1862, the ethnologist Robert Knox, who's a pretty nasty man, he also ventured into the the highlands and he came back with all these conclusions uh, about the Celts. And this is 1862. It is not that long ago. Um, Mm. So this is some of what he says. I quote, In stature and weight, the Celt as a race is inferior to the Anglo-Saxon. Limbs muscular and vigorous, torso and arms seldom attaining any very large development. Hence, the extreme rarity of athletics among the race. A despiser of the peaceful arts, of labour, of order, and of the law, it is fortunate for mankind that the Celtic race is broken up into fragments. Is this civilization? Was it for this that man was created? Oh my god. Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. This is so fascinatingly, like, 
indistinguishable or like inseparable from the broader imperial rhetoric of colonization where native people were constantly being described as inherently unable to govern themselves and Britain was like kindly you know assuming responsibility and helping them out. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, so it's really important that we remember that this was the climate in which the popular Celtic narrative as we know it developed. You know, it is no coincidence that the Celts are still popularly portrayed as like free-spirited or artistic or in tune with nature. Yeah, kind those of things Yeah, yeah, childlike exactly. Uh, those things, you know, they they seem like positives maybe to us. Um but originally those at- attributes were very deliberately assigned to the Celts to show that they were that they were too flighty, they were too whimsical to rule themselves. They needed a strong, doughty Anglo-Saxon hand, you know, to show them the way. Um in fact, mm-hmm. you could say that the the whole Celtic thing that developed at this point was chiefly designed to to bolster the idea of sensible level-headed Anglo-Saxons, you know, as being natural rulers. Uh, listen to what that same guy, Knox, has to say on this. He, he says this just after describing what he calls the Celtic race. Now look at the self-confident Anglo-Saxon. See how he <laughs> plunges into the forest, boldly <laughs> ventures on the prairie, fears no labour. With him all is order, wealth, comfort, and you reign disorder. Riot, destruction, waste. So, oh now, there's, there's loads. This is, by the way, this is all abridged, just a, a disclaimer there. Um, there's loads that he mentions. One of the qualities of the Anglo Saxon race that he mentions is their ability to colonize. Oh my God. Uh, like, I personally, when you talked about striding into the forest, like, I imagine this, like, gammony, like, home <laughs> counties English guy, like, heavy footed, stomping into the forest. Like, it's all, it's kind of hilarious, like, and I can't not laugh, but it's also terrifying. Like, it was hmm. entirely seriously meant. It's kind of slightly uncomfortable to realize how important this is in understanding the idea that we have of the nature loving, you know, long haired Celt with his primitive robes and harp like it was part of a political strategy to undermine people who didn't sub- submit to English cultural norms. Um, I actually spoke with Adrian Martin about this. He's an independent historian on medieval Irish history. You might remember him from our episode on Galway in a previous season. Uh, for him, the modern idea of Celticity is basically just offensive because at the heart of it, it still expresses this idea of inherent English dominance over the other nations on these islands. Let's take a listen to him. We are, were an invaded and colonised country. There's a reason you and I are speaking to each other in English, and that's because Irish was, you know, near erased under the English administration. And in place of, uh, of that, they decided to impose their own racial structure. I mean, that is what Celticity really is at, at the end of the day. It all goes back to race, where the Celts are the lowest form of white men and Anglo-Saxons are the top. So Anglo-Saxons' interpretation and concepts of history ruled those of the so-called Celts do not. That's uh, the base reason why uh, I hate, and I do use the word hate, I hate the Celticity, because it doesn't teach you a damn thing about Irish history and heritage. It only teaches you what the English believe to be Irish history and heritage. And as the last four years have show us, shown us, they know very, very little about us. So we can see for how long the word Celt has been politicised. And of course, it's the same today, which we'll get into later. Uh, but all this like hot air and 
cultural theory about it, we risk losing sight of the real ancient peoples of Ireland who, of course, existed. They had monuments. They had those symbols which we now know as Celtic. So whether we want to call them Celts or not, they were real. So who were they and what were they like? Yes, indeed. So right. So the, the people of Iron Age Ireland um, had all sorts of names for themselves, it turns out. But uh, for the sake of brevity, I'm expecting more angry letters on this, but I'm just going to do it. Uh, <laughs> we'll just use we'll just use one of the more common ones, which was the Gales. And at certain points, we know that they definitely called themselves the Gales. So the Gales are the guys that we see portrayed in Irish mythology. Uh, they're the ones who created all that famous Celtic art you can see in museums in Dublin. They pretty much created pre-colonial Irish society as we know it. And DNA evidence tells us that they were probably direct descendants of the people who built like the much older Neolithic monuments thousands of years previously. Um, and we, Naomi, you and me, are probably direct descendants of them. When, you, when people say the word Celts, what they really mean is the Gale. If you look at our history, the Irish did refer to themselves by a number of different names. The Fenni in the early period, and then the Goyle. You also had uh, the Latin term Scotti. Genetics tell us they were our direct ancestors. The last major population change here in Ireland was uh, back at the change between the Neolithic and uh, the Bronze Age. So that's over 4,000 years ago. And there is no evidence of any major population upset or upturn between now and then. Like, you and I both have Gaelic surnames. Uh, Omartan, Agus Machanerne. So we're descendants from these people, albeit a thousand years separates them and uh, the creation of our surnames. But there is no great population overturn between the beginning of the Bronze Age up to, say, the Vikings turn up. Now, these people, Fraser told me, would have had a lot in common with the neighbouring peoples who lived in Wales and Scotland, but they were also really quite distinct um, among themselves. Uh, they had different settlement patterns, different languages, different social structures and different art, all of which they were constantly borrowing from one another. If you went back to about 3rd century BC, you would see a landscape of farmers in, in Britain, certainly you'd see a landscape full of roundhouses, a landscape where people are living inside hill forts, and a landscape where most people live fairly local lives, but some people have very wide-ranging connections. Interestingly, if you went to Ireland, you would see something slightly different. And this makes the point, again, it was the differences between different areas that are shared in other ways. So we have these things called hill forts, they're one of the dominant pieces of, of archaeology of both Britain and Ireland. But in Ireland, the hill forts tend to be older, they tend to be late Bronze Age, and they're abandoned by the Iron Age. In Britain, most of the hill forts are Iron Age. In Britain, we see roundhouses, farmsteads all across the landscape. In Ireland, these are really hard to pin down in the Iron Age. And what we see instead are the big, spectacular ceremonial sites, the places like Navan and Tara, that become that drip with myth in later periods, if you like. So even between these two islands that are so close together, there are big differences in the Iron Age, even though they're speaking versions of the same language, using versions of the same art style. So if you go and look at something like, say, the Book of Kells, one of the classic bits of Celtic art, there's all kinds of different strands in its makeup. And some of those strands are coming out of this contact with the Roman world, and some of them are coming out of contact with the Anglo-Saxon world, this what gets called a Germanic world, where there's a different style of art with biting beasts and so on. One of the striking things about the South Big Celtic art is it mixes these strands together. Amazingly, Gaelic culture existed in Ireland in one form or another 
way up into the late Middle Ages. Initially, these gales would have been polytheistic, and we can still find references to some of their gods in Irish mythology. Some of the rituals of those gods even survive in the Gaelic calendar, which is still used in Ireland to a certain extent. So festivals in honour of the god Lu and Bridget, for example, still mark the end of summer and the beginning of spring, respectively. From about the 5th century, the Gaels started developing their own form of Christianity. You can still see traces of that very distinct Celtic monastic culture in places like the incredible island of Skellig Michael. After the fall of Rome, in fact, these monastic centres became one of the most important centres for European Christianity. Uh, Gaelic society was built on a very complex political framework known as Taunashtri, which is where we get the modern word Taunashtha, the Irish equivalent to deputy prime minister. As early as the 4th century, or perhaps even earlier, uh, the Gaels had developed a unique form of writing called Ogham or Ohm, which they used to write ancient Irish, uh, but later on they developed a Gaelic version of the Roman alphabet, and that was actually used for writing the Irish language until the mid-20th century. Many of the great Gaelic forts and ceremonial sites that are all over the Irish countryside date all the way back to the Iron Age. There's also, of course, the Hill of Tara, which is thought to have been the seat of the High Kings of Ireland and contains the remains of an amazing 27 ceremonial sites, some of them dating back to the Neolithic period. A lot of what we actually know about day-to-day life in the Iron Age in Ireland comes from the study of bog bodies. These are, you know, human bodies that were preserved by chance in the acidic peat bogs that cover much of the Irish Midlands. So there's one called Old Crowan Man, uh, for instance. He, he was discovered in 2003. Uh, we can tell from his body that he was over six foot tall. Uh, he had well manicured nails. We know what he ate for his last meal. Um, there was lots of meat, but he had also been eating uh, buttermilk and wheat. Another Iron Age bog body, Coney Cavan Man, was discovered in 2003. Amazingly, his body was so well preserved that we can see that he used a sort of hair gel in his hair, which was made of a pine resin imported from France. The whole thing is, is pretty amazing. Um, we're discovering more stuff all the time, but would be here all day if we were to even give you a glimpse into all those artifacts. So if you're ever in Dublin, I absolutely urge you to take a visit to the ancient collections of Celtic art in the National Archaeology Museum. It's one of my favourite places in the world, and the entry is free, by the way. The art from this period of Irish history is just so stunning, and it kind of has to be seen to be believed. Let's turn now to look at how Celtic identity interplays with modern politics in Ireland, Wales, Scotland and England. I think it's really useful in this concept to take a look at the cultural climate around the time of Irish independence, which kind of brought all of this to the fore. Tim, you were talking about how the Celtic identity was used by England in the 18th century to undermine the other cultures in their union and to make it seem like they were just inherently incapable of self-governance without the English to help them. And this was, of course, an argument that was used against the Irish when they were agitating for home rule in the 19th century. What is pretty astonishing and kind of hilarious is that this English strategy totally backfired when it came to Ireland. So as you might remember from our episode on 1916, people in Ireland at this time just started owning that Celtic identity. So instead of taking it as evidence that they were inferior, they kind of reframed the whole thing. They used it as evidence that they were quintessentially different from the English, and thus it made no sense to have Ireland governed from Westminster. Yeah, this was a pretty brilliant rhetorical trick on on the side of the Irish nationalists. Um, You know, changing all those 
negative connotations of Celtic identity into positives. Um, in that 1916 episode, you might remember, the historian Declan Kybert explained to us that these Irish nationalists, they started to use just different words when discussing like Celtic or Irish identity. So instead of saying that the Celts were like, quote unquote, over emotional, they would change that to a word like insightful. Or instead of using impulsive, they might say assertive. And that was really, really effective. Um, organizations like the Celtic League started promoting Celtic identity as something to be proud of, something special that set the Irish totally apart from like boring old Anglo-Saxon Britain. Of course, the British had kind of unwittingly given the Irish this very unified and romantic vision of an ancient past, which could uh, just mm. as easily be used for nationalist propaganda as it could to other people. Um, cultural revivalists at that stage started republishing Irish mythology in books and plays. Uh, the whole thing inspired an, a new wave of fashion that, that even took off in Britain itself. So you started to see people dressing up in kilts or wearing Celtic jewellery, and there was an explosion of interest in learning Irish. So by 1916, you saw that mythologized Celticity being woven into practically every, every aspect of the revolutionary movement against British rule. So once the, once the 26 southern counties of Ireland achieved independence in 1922, the Irish language and everything that was seen as Celtic was very proudly integrated into the aesthetics of the new state. Even the great symbol of the revolution itself was a statue of the dying Cúchulainn, who's one of the major figures from Irish mythology. It's really interesting, but that statue of the dying Cúchulainn very clearly echoes the dying Celt from Roman tradition, but the message is completely different. Rather than being, you know, um, sort of a tragic figure, a defeated figure, in the Cúchulainn statue, Cúchulainn has strapped himself to a standing stone so that he'll die fighting on his feet, resistant to the very end. And that's very much the tone of the Irish Revolution, a kind of unquenchable resistance. Yeah, I, like, I, I can't get enough of these like double and triple ironies that are you know that are happening in this history like it's it's such a brilliant quirk of history that we see happening um, you have this new revolutionary Irish nation uh, styling itself as Celtic even though the ancient people there had never considered themselves as Celts and the Celtic identity that they were promoting had originally been manufactured as a means to undermine their ability to be independent <laughs> so like it, it adds a whole other layer to the modern Celtic identity and if you ask me you know that reclaimed version of Celticness, you know, albeit quite fictional and quite fantasy, it's just as real and as valid in its own way as any other Celtic legacy and, in, in modern Ireland. And, like, in a way, like, who cares if, you know, we use the word Celts? Like, the people, the ancient people of Ireland did exist. They did have those cultures. We do have their heritage in the museum. Like, this quibbling over the word Celt, like, does it really matter? So basically what happened is the manufactured Celtic identity ended up backfiring in England in a spectacular way. But more interestingly, actually, it's continued to backfire. So today, assertions of Celtic identity are often still at the heart of independence movements in Scotland and Wales. The simple act of speaking Welsh, for example, or wearing a kilt can sometimes take on a huge political significance in different contexts. And of course, in Northern Ireland, unionist resistance to legally recognising the Irish language is not just about the language itself, but it's also about opposing that sense of non-Britishness that Celtic identity came to represent in the Republic. 
Yeah. Now, that very present political dimension to Celtic identity has actually had a really bizarre impact on how the history of the Celts is discussed, um, especially in Britain today. Um, in fact, Naomi, the whole field of Celtic studies right now seems to have become something of a political battleground. There are some very unsubtle political agendas at play in there. Um, we're talking now about in the fields of like like archaeological studies and how things are presented in museums and that kind of thing. Yeah, and especially how they're presented to a wider public in articles and in popular history books and especially on TV. Now, I started noticing this years ago and it struck me as really unusual right away. So, like, Naomi, we've reviewed loads of evidence here today. We've seen how the history of the Celts has been quite muddled. We've seen how the ancient people of Ireland didn't call themselves Celts. They probably weren't related to continental Celts either, but that they did nonetheless adopt aspects of what we recognise as Celtic culture and traditions um, at some point, Right. right? Right. Well... Around the early 2000s, you started to see all these popular TV documentaries and newspaper articles taking that idea and like pretty much running with it in this really weird way. And what you started to see them doing was saying, all right, so the Celts didn't exist at all. But like, which Celts are we talking about? Are we talking about the (laughs) the Celts that started off in Switzerland with the, the, you know, the origin of the Celtic family (laughs) of languages or the sort of misnomer for the peoples of Ireland? That's the conspicuous thing. That was what really stood out to me. They always left that part a little bit vague. You know, what was noticeable about those framings was that they had clearly kind of manipulated the information to give the impression that none of these people existed. The the Swiss ones, the Irish ones, the Scottish ones. You know, that was how they were presenting it. And a lot of people would hear that. And, you know, that's probably the the exposure that they were getting to to this issue. So it was was just really odd. I'm struggling to pin down exactly... Can you just explain, how is this done? Like, can you give us some examples? Okay, right. I have some great examples. Okay, right. So, um, And I'm so glad I had an excuse to look this up because this has been niggling at me for years. So, for instance, listen to this headline from the Independent newspaper from 1997. Now, this is about um, an academic called Simon James, and he's one of those archaeologists who says we shouldn't use the word Celts for those people in in Scotland and Ireland and Wales. Um, He's one of those people who says, no, that's misleading, Mm -hmm. okay? He, um, he was interviewed for this article in The Independent, and just listen to the headline. The Celts were really just a Scots myth. Okay. Right. Now, listen to the first paragraph. The Celts are thought of as a romantic people, hard-drinking, free-spirited, and proud. But according to a respected academic, the Celts of the British Isles may never have existed. This is really strange. (laughs) Right? It's so strange. And like, there's so much going on there. Like, first of all, all they're presenting, you know, if the Celts did exist, they only existed as that weird colonial fantasy. And then they said, even that didn't exist, actually. And what's being totally erased from that first paragraph, which is what most people, you know, as a journalist, most people only read the first paragraph of an article, or lots of people, rather, is a total erasure of the real ancient peoples. So it's like, what is the implication? It's like, oh, the ancient people of the island of Britain were always like, what, Anglo-Saxon or what? Well, you see, I mean, they just don't explain. But I think that that's kind of the implication. I think that's what they're hoping the readers to take away. Like, it's definitely very pointed and it has, has, like I say, an agenda. Now, that same year, uh, Simon James himself, uh, who was that uh, archaeologist, he published an article in the Financial Times um, with another bizarrely misleading title. This one reads... The Celts. It was all just a myth. 
Okay. It's like, so clearly like these are kind of clickbait or like rage bait. Yeah. But they, they actually, yeah. they do really represent what the archaeologists were saying, which is that we just shouldn't use the same word for the Swiss origin continental Celts and these island peoples. And what, what are they getting at there? It seems like what they're getting at is Scottish nationalists are deluded and silly. Well, right. Well, hold on. <laughs> hold on. I've got more. <laughs> I'm not at all done with this yet. Um, listen to this clip from a 2006 Channel 4 documentary. This was presented by a man called Richard Rudgley. Uh, now, I also remember seeing this when it first came out, and I rewatched it recently, and I have to say the whole thing is really cringeworthy. It basically consists of this guy, Richard Rudgley, going around to people in Scotland and Wales and saying, so you think you're Celts, do you? Wrong. <laughs> And these people are like pretty baffled at what he like why are you here um, and when he does talk about the historical Celts he spends like kind of an embarrassing amount of time talking about how much they like to drink um, you know he even does this whole like wine drinking ceremony and he finds this little wine drinking goblet and he says oh of course of course for wine what else um, you know so like it's just for me anyway that's just pure Victorian stereotyping lazy stereotyping like what the hell like the ancient Greeks had like bacchanalia festivals but we don't go around like describing them as drunks, we're not like the you know, famously like drunken Greeks, you know. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, like you know, this has a lot more to do with just like current day kind of uh, stereotypes. Um, but anyway, this clip in particular is so so fascinating. It comes towards the end of the documentary where Rudgley is wrapping the whole thing up, and at this point, he's speaking to an archaeologist in Dublin. So, if the Irish aren't Celtic, what are they? Well, Irish is what we have called ourselves for. For a very long time. Um, no reason to change there then? No. I don't think so, no. no. No, no. Well, maybe European is the next big label that we'll all be embracing. Lots of people will be shocked to hear that the Irish aren't Celts at all. And if the Irish aren't Celts, what about the Scots and the Welsh? Okay, so there is so much to unpack in that statement. Like, firstly, is it, is it me or does, you know, Richard Rudgley completely misrepresent what that archaeologist said to him there or at least not represented totally honestly? Um, you know, I suppose it, it's, it's a little bit ambiguous. Now, secondly, listen to the way he frames his conclusions. If the Irish aren't Celts, what does that make the Scots and the Welsh? Now, this one really struck me. Like, it's such a loaded statement. Uh, first of all, it paints the Scots and the Welsh as somehow less Celtic in the first place, like they have less claim to the identity, almost as if they've been playing like dress up this whole time, like imitating the Irish or something. Uh, but it also struck me how pointed this was towards the nations that were still within the modern United Kingdom. You know, Ireland in that statement, it kind of seems besides the point, right? We're getting back to what's important, and that's negating the idea of Celts in Wales and Scotland above all. I guess what's going on here is there's there seems to be a recognition in this of the cultural power of the Celtic revival in creating a mythologized back history for national identities in Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And undermining that idea of Celticness is satisfying from a British unionist perspective. I absolutely agree. And I was, you know, still a little bit puzzled why this quite opaque and kind of dishonest take was getting so much <laughs> oxygen. But then... It was only while researching for this episode and I was looking up those articles that it all clicked into place, Naomi. Mm -hmm. All of these articles and that documentary and all that, it all dates from the time around Scottish and Welsh devolution. 
If you think back to the wording of that Independent article, remember I quoted earlier, the Celts were really just a Scots myth. Right. It suddenly all makes sense. Okay, so like they're just, they're self-deluded. They're, they are just British, basically. And yeah, yeah, all of yeah, these yeah. fancies that they have about nationhood or being different is... It has no basis. So, and this mm. was coming up around 1998, which was when Scotland and Wales won the right to have their own uh, local assemblies, you know, local governments, which gave them powers over various kinds of laws and regulations, uh, particularly over things like, you know, education and so on. Um, and at many, many people at that time uh, saw that as a massive threat to the United Kingdom and as a stepping stone toward independence. And that same year, of course, the Good Friday Agreement was was signed, um, which gave the North the option of voting to leave the UK should it want to, um, quite explicitly. And it initiated power sharing, which basically broke the system of unionist control over the territory. So perhaps this is really about the fragility of British identity. I also think it's just kind of mind-blowing to see how a modern political agenda can be so seamlessly woven into something as innocuous-seeming as like, you know, a Sunday afternoon documentary about the ancient world. Like, it, it really, it also shows how much political clout the Celtic identity has today. It is clearly seen by some as a legitimate threat. And some people in Britain, it seems, would like to see it kind of culturally erased for good. So it's probably clear by now that, like, far from not existing, Celtic identity exists in countless forms all over the world. Um, Some aspects Mm. were kind of born from imperialism. Some comes from nationalism. Uh, Some are very, you know, accord absolutely with an ancient Celtic past. And some reference a totally different ancient past. And some are just about dressing up at a music festival and having some creative fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And this is such a fascinating history, guys, ancient and modern. And um, I suppose if there is one takeaway from all this, it's that Celtic does not not need to refer to one unified or identified tradition. Um, You know, it means a lot of different things to different people. Um, And instead of framing that multiplicity as a non-existence uh, of the Celts, you could see this instead as a kind of invitation to delve deeper into those different interpretations Mm -hmm. and find out what's true in this and what's not amid all the noise. Uh, So when you do get down to the complicated truths, it's guaranteed to be more interesting than any kind of romantic myth or political fantasy. As for all that lore and magic of the Celtic world, to an extent, it really does exist, just maybe not in the way that we might think it does. I'll leave the last word to Dr. Fraser Hunter. When the National Museum ever reopens again, comes the National Museum in Edinburgh. You know, and there's, there's no substitute for looking at objects. Um, these are powerful objects. This Celtic art is like a, it's like a skin. It gives these objects a power. It gives them an importance. Losing yourself into the this, this spiraling, twisting world of these art objects is a fantastic way to, to try to understand them. By the way, if you want to hear more from Adrian Martin, he has a new book out all about the history of Irish surnames, which might be of interest to some of our listeners. It's called Irish Surnames, Origins and Development, and it's available over on Adrian's website, which is adrianmartin.ie, M-A-R-T-Y-N dot I-E. Don't forget, of course, to like and share the podcast if you enjoyed it. And if you want some more Irish Passport extra content, head on over to our Patreon page where you can gain access to our half pint episodes by becoming a subscriber today. Thanks so much for listening and salon, everyone. Salon. <laughs>